You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Welcome to a new year of SpyCast. We hope you enjoyed the last two weeks of some great episodes from the SpyCast Vault. We are now jumping right back in with an incredibly timely episode. If this were a Law & Order episode, we would say ripped from the headlines. And as we move into the new year, we are excited about all the great SpyCasts we have lined up for you. Our team is working tirelessly to get the best and most interesting guests, and we hope you'll find them as intriguing as we do. We'd also like to thank our sponsors that have helped make SpyCasts great and free. Today's podcast is brought to you with the help of two of these, Blue Apron and Zip Recruiter. You'll hear more about them shortly, but first, let's meet our guest. We're joined today by Dmitry Alperovich, who is the co-founder and CTO of CrowdStrike, leading its intelligence technology and CrowdStrike Labs team. Prior to finding, founding CrowdStrike, Dmitry was a vice president of threat research at McAfee, where he led the company's global internet threat intelligence analysis and investigations. In 2010 and 2011, he led the global team that investigated and brought to light Operation Aurora, Night Dragon, and Shady Rat groundbreaking cyber espionage intrusions and gave those incidents their names. In 2013, he received the prestigious recognition of being selected as MIT Technology Review's Young Innovators Under 35 and was named Foreign Policy Magazine's Leading Global Thinker for 2013, an award shared with Secretary of State John Kerry, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos. He was a recipient of the prestigious Federal 100 Award for his contribution to the Federal Information Security in 2011 and recognized in 2013 as Washingtonian's tech titans for his accomplishments in the field of cybersecurity. In 2016, he was just named one of Politico 50, Thinkers, Doers, and Visionaries Transforming American Politics. He's got more than a decade of experience in the field of information security. He's an inventor of 18 patented technologies and conducted extensive research on reputation systems, spam detection, web security, public key and identity-based cryptography, malware and intrusion detection and prevention. He holds a master's degree in information security and a BA in, BS in computer science, both from Georgia Tech. Thank you, Dimitri, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me. So as your name suggests and as your lack of accent uh, suggests, you, you are... Uh, from Russia, but you've spent a lot of time uh, here in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about your biography? Tell us uh, how you got here and what got you into this field in the first place. Sure. Well, I was born in Russia, but uh, my family and I immigrated when I was a kid to the United States. And uh, I've been passionate about cybersecurity for uh, over two decades now that I've been actually in this field. And it all started with uh, my dad and I actually starting an encryption company 
uh, back in the in the 90s and my dad was passionate about the math piece parts of the encryption he was a mathematician by trade and nuclear physicist actually and he just wanted to um, do something to exercise his mind and I was thinking about the commercial aspect of it so um, we started the company together when I was still in high school and I was about to say back in the 1990s you weren't yeah. exactly I, you're, people aren't seeing you but if they google you they'll see that you are rel- you're younger than I am which You've done a lot more than I have, which is annoying. But uh, you know, you were very young when you were already thinking about computer encryption. Yeah, at the, at the time, um, my dad was thinking purely about the uh, fun things of the math of being being able to build unbreakable encryption algorithms. I was more thinking about security of the data. And early on, I realized it doesn't matter how good the algorithms are if the key can be stolen. If someone ha- can hack in, uh, break into your computer, and steal your passwords, steal your keys. So I started thinking about this more as a cat and mouse game pretty early on and thinking about how we can track bad guys and uh, what we can do to actually deter them. So that's what led to my career in security. In the 90s, very few people are thinking about this. I mean, I'm relatively your age, and, you know, I'm thinking of movies like uh, the one with Angelina Jolie uh, going back to, what is it? Uh, Oh, my God, I can't believe it. But she was, like, our age, too, you know, very young, and no one really understood what was happening, computer security was not something a lot of people were thinking of. You look at Enemy of the State and the really first movie about the NSA and, and their capabilities. Uh, what Was it your father really that drove you into thinking, I mean, you said he was just looking at the mathematical side of this. What got you thinking that the future was going to be computer security? Well, I was really uh, interested in the sort of chess uh, game that, that cybersecurity is. One of the things I realized early on is that the adversary always has a move to play, and I think that's something that still constrains our defenses in many ways. We're thinking of cool ways to defend our networks, build new technologies, but we're not thinking about what the response is going to be from the adversary. And um, that's a really important thing because they'd never just go away, as we find out, particularly with these nation-state actors that keep coming back at you again and again and again. So you have to be always on your toes, always thinking about what you can do to both identify them, hunt uh, within your networks, um, but also to try to deter them at the policy level. So um, in the um, early 2000s, they started working with law enforcement, with the FBI on tracking down some cyber criminals. And that's when I actually started infiltrating some of these Russian underground forums um, that were um, engaged in credit card theft and, and spam operations. And uh, that's where my uh, Russian background came in handy because I could actually pretend to be yeah. one of them and speak the language and infiltrate myself um, sort of undercover in those virtual forums. And um, that's when I started to become more passionate about the policy aspect of this as well, realizing that it's not just a technology problem, that at the end of the day, you have to bring these people to justice. And obviously, with nation states being involved, uh, that becomes even more urgent. And you did that on your own, if I remember right from reading about you, that you just started kind of picking a fight with some of these Russian uh, organized crime, and then the FBI came to you, and you thought you were potentially in trouble, uh, but they wanted to bring you on. Yeah, what happened was that I was at a startup um, doing um, anti-spam detection technology, and I realized that to stay one step ahead of these hackers, you have to develop intelligence on what they're doing, how they're building their algorithms, how they're building these programs and compromising machines all over the world to send out spam. So by infiltrating those forums, I was actually giving my company a leg up in terms of what they were doing so we can be much more proactive. And as I was doing this uh, and publishing some of this information, I was contacted by the FBI who wanted to work with me and and that sort of led to um, uh, a long, uh, great relationship with the Bureau and other law enforcement agencies. 
So in, in 2010, when you were at McAfee, uh, you actually were able to expose a huge uh, attempt to hack into a ton of international organizations, including the Olympic Committee, the United Nations. Uh, and this is where, from what I've read, the real kind of debate about attribution kicked up. You know, you were able to discover these were the Chinese that were doing this. Uh, but it's not always easy to kind of politically blame it on a particular country. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Can you talk about that? Sure, I'm happy to talk yeah. about it. The, the interesting thing about attribution is that attribution uh, has been done in cyber since really the creation of this field 30 years ago. In fact, one of the most famous cases is uh, Cliff Stoll, uh, an astronomer from Berkeley Labs who wrote this great book, Cuckoo's Egg, about his ability to track uh, spies operating out of West Germany but working on behalf of the KGB that were hacking into, in the 1980s, into uh, universities and using that as a jumping off point to break into national security establishments and Department of Defense to steal um, sensitive research um, on uh, weapons programs. So this has been going on for a long time and I was doing attribution back in the early 2000s to Russian hackers who were sending out spam and breaking into systems and working with law enforcement to bring them to justice and that wasn't controversial at all. No one was right. questioning attribution when it was just a guy or a group of guys that were being identified and thrown into jail, but suddenly you call out a nation state and everyone says that attribution is impossible in cyber. Right. When, when you could identify the people and actually prosecute them, no one was questioning it, but suddenly you call out China and, and no one believes you. So um, that was a really interesting experience. It started with um, uh, the first case being um, the um, Operation Aurora, which was an intrusion into Google and, and about um, a couple dozen other um, high-tech companies. And that was really the first time that the world outside of a classified uh, realm woke up to the threat of nation states. Up until that point, everyone assumed there are hacktivist groups out there, there are criminal groups, uh, but no one was really thinking or acknowledging that nation states had a huge role to play. And of course, they've been active in that field for uh, uh, two dozen years, but no one was noticing. So that was the first operation that I highlighted, uh, that pointed the finger in China. And then as I started pulling on the strings, I realized that that wasn't a one-off, that they had been doing this for many years and uh, compromising dozens and dozens of companies. It seems like if it was Belgium or you know, Central African Republic, no one would have a problem with attribution. How much of the financial considerations came into not pointing at China as the, the problem? Well, it, it was certainly a consideration being part of a global company that had business in China. Uh, we had to be very careful because it wasn't just about the business, to be honest with you, but the fact that we had employees there. Yeah. Um, some of them were threatened by the Chinese government and felt very unsafe. In fact, I remember getting a call from one of our uh, employees uh, based in, in Beijing who was basically saying, Dimitri, what are you doing to me? You know, <laughs> you're going to get me and my family in trouble. And, and that was very sobering, actually. Let me take a quick minute to tell you about Blue Apron. I am an atrocious cook, to the point of setting fire to a stove trying to cook spaghetti, something most seven-year-olds can pull off without involving the fire department. I'm also someone that used to never have anything green in my diet that wasn't a Skittle or a Crunchberry. I can honestly say that Blue Apron helped me change this for the better. Now, I can't say that I'm a much better cook than I was, but Blue Apron makes things so easy, I can cook something without a fire extinguisher as an essential kitchen utensil. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and they are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Apron achieves this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients and building a community of home chefs. 
To give you an idea, Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. This means that seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals, and produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. Blue Apron can be delivered in 99% of the continent of the United States and 99.5% of food deserts. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste. So let me give you an idea about some upcoming food meals from Blue Apron. Spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake. I don't know what furikake is, but knowing Blue Apron, I'm sure it's good. Pork chops and garlic piccata with scallion rice and spinach. Mushroom and chipotle pepper enchiladas with lime sour cream. What's cool about Blue Apron is the variety. You can have these recipes, but you can also choose from a variety of new recipes every week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. They're also flexible, and for someone like me that travels a lot, this is really important because you can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options so you can choose what fits your needs, and there's no weekly commitment, so you only get the deliveries when you want them. And they're easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less, and Blue Apron is guaranteed. Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com spycast. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com spycast. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I don't know how much or how little this had to do with you leaving uh, McAfee and, fu- and founding CrowdStrike, uh, because it happened a year later, and you can talk as much or a little about that. Um, but you went for attribution against the Chinese in 2014. You published a report that clearly linked the Chinese armed forces to cyber attacks in U.S. public and private sectors. Um, was this uh, kind of a way to break free from the shackles by starting your own company, and, and that doesn't have these kind of international considerations that something big like McAfee, which I think was bought by Intel at that time, which is massive. Is CrowdStrike more agile and the ability to not have those kind of limitations? Well, this uh, attribution is really one of the core tenets of what CrowdStrike is all about. When we started the company, uh, my co-founder and I, we realized that it was really important um, to educate um, the uh, global community, but our customers in particular, on the types of threats that they face and link it to their business practices. So um, we were hearing from C-level executives inside companies that they really want to know who's attacking them and why, right? Um, It was important to them to understand that their intellectual property is being stolen and given to their competitor in China because it actually impacts your business practices. It wasn't just about the bits and bytes. Um, um, So when I hear uh, from people that attribution is irrelevant, why is everyone focused on it? Um, Well, it's not irrelevant to the board. It's not irrelevant to the executives because they're actually using that to make business decisions day in, day out. And certainly it's not irrelevant to the government. So uh, we've always focused on that and we've done a number of things um, over the course of um, uh, the company's um, um, existence to highlight some of these groups. So we were the first ones to publicly attribute the Sony hack to North Koreans. We were um, attributing the um, uh, Chinese hacks, uh, obviously, and uh, um, Iranians um, back in the day and and now the Russians. And I think that many of our listeners may understand the concept of 
Chinese hacking into Lockheed Martin or General Dynamics or General Atomics, some of these defense firms. And, and I think you've done a great job in, in explaining why a company that doesn't do defense stuff like Google or Sony or somebody else may be a target uh, because of something beyond defense, right? The kind of big business side, the trillions of dollars that are being you know passed around because of some of this high tech stuff uh, that is proprietary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at uh, organizations, whether it's commercial entities or government agencies or even nonprofits and universities, everyone's come under these attacks, whether it's to steal their intellectual property and give it to a competitor, whether it's to monetize their data from a cybercrime perspective in some financial way, or whether it's to engage in some political espionage and even influence operations as we have seen in the course of 2016 election. So many people who are my age or a little bit older uh, may think of uh, cyber defense as updating your McAfee antivirus software every so often and then getting annoyed when it tells you to do it again and again. Uh, that's obviously a very old-fashioned way of looking at this. And, I, and you've kind of redefined this with some terms that I want you to talk a little bit about, and that's offensive security and active defense. So this seems like going far beyond just having a good virus blocker on your computer. Yeah, uh, the reality is that today's antivirus uh, technologies are no longer solving the problem. Um, in fact, it's questionable whether they were ever really effective against um, significant and persistent adversaries. But certainly when you look at all these major attacks like the DNC hack and many of the others we've been involved in, um, Sony, etc., cetera, um, antivirus technologies completely failed because when you had a new threat that, that came in um, that uh, e even perhaps was a variant of the old threat, the, the antivirus technologies that were signature-based weren't able to deal with the problem. So one of the things that we focus on at CrowdStrike is actually looking at the intent of what someone is trying to do. We call this indicators of attack, where you're really profiling the behaviors of what someone is trying to do and um, determining whether it's malicious or not based on that and linking what are called TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures in the intelligence community to particular adversaries to conduct attribution. So the way this works is I, I often use a bank robbery analogy. How do you know that someone is robbing a bank? Sort of the antivirus ways to say, well, you have to have pictures of known bank robbers in every teller's window so that when someone comes in, they can look at them and match it to the picture and determine if it's a bank robber. And that's super effective if the guy is or gal is not wearing uh, you know, a disguise um, or if um, um, they've previously robbed banks and are now on the list. But if it's a new bank robber that comes in or if they're not recognizable, you're obviously going to fail um, in uh, detecting that bank robbery. So a much more effective way is to say, well, you don't actually care what they look like, what they're wearing, what kind of getaway car they're driving. But if what they're doing is getting into the bank, getting into the vault, taking the money out and leaving, that's a bank robbery in progress. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter um, you know, what disguises they're wearing. That's the action you need to focus on and stopping. And you, you have a bit of a, a philosophy of not having a malware problem and an adversary problem. I thought that was really interesting. I wonder, you may have already kind of explained that, but if there's more to that, I'd love to hear it. Because when I read that, I'm like, okay, that makes a lot more sense to me. Where people have been focusing too much on what is the program or whatever, but it's more about motivations and means and methods of the, of the actual adversary. That's exactly right. I mean, that was really the revolutionary premise behind starting CrowdStrike is that the rest of the industry for three decades have been focusing on sort of the digital bullets or digital crowbars and figuring out how to stop it without asking, well, who's actually holding that gun? Who's actually using that crowbar and why and how? And the important thing to realize is that these bullets and crowbars, they will change. Uh, technology evolves just as defensive technology is evolving, offensive technology is evolving as well. But the adversaries ultimately don't change. The mm -hmm. Chinese have been hacking 
uh, into U.S. companies for the better part of uh, 15 years. Um, the Russians have been engaged in this since the 80s, um, as Cliff Stoll's book has shown. So um, um, their tradecraft changes over time, so you have to pay attention to that. But ultimately, knowing who these adversaries are, what they're trying to do, what they're going after is very, very important. So when you look at something like the DNC, um, it may seem new to us, but the Russians have influenced uh, elections before. They've done so in Ukraine in 2014, mm -hmm. as an example. And outside of cyber, they've been doing this for many decades, going back to the uh, old days of the Soviet Union. So we shouldn't really be shocked when we're seeing these types of activities. Well, let's dive into the DNC hack, because I think that's where the name of your company has really jumped to the forefront, where uh, a lot of information's come out about you. I mean, there's an article, uh, I think it was in the... the Esquire or something where they they, they called uh, you and you and your company as our special forces in Putin's worst nightmare, which is great. Um, the, the the hack itself, the fact that we know so much about it is rare. Uh, and you, you talked about in other uh, interviews that uh, really this is a milestone in the industry that DNC being willing to release this information was something that was game changer. Can you talk a little bit about? when you were called in, how it progressed, and then to that point where the DNC leadership decided, Let, let's go public with this. Yeah. Well, CrowdStrike actually stops probably dozens um, uh, of these types of breaches on a daily basis uh, across our customer base, engages in numerous investigations all the time. None of that is ever shared publicly because we're under strict confidentiality agreements with our customers. So the groundbreaking thing uh, with the DNC was that they, they came to us and said, we really want to go public and tell the full story of what happened to us, the fact that it was Russia. We want you to publish our attribution and you, we want you to publish all the details about how they broke in and what they did inside the network. Um, that has never happened, uh, certainly to us before, and I think was a big milestone in the industry of victim wanting to come forward and tell the full story with attribution uh, which most organizations um, really want to keep to themselves and you know for geopolitical reasons as well so um, that was um, uh, certainly uh, fascinating to us um, and initially uh, when we uh, came in to investigate um, uh, suspicious activity at the DNC and deployed our um, Falcon endpoint technology and all their machines and realized it was the Russians it wasn't that surprising. I mean, we deal with these types of threats, whether it's the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians, all the time. And frankly, I was thinking at the time that the, the fact that the Russians are trying to break into a major political party in the United States is not all that surprising. Right. That's what intelligence agencies do. Absolutely, yeah. That's what the U.S. intelligence yeah. agencies do against foreign parties because you want to know about what they're thinking, what their policy positions are, what types of people may be working in the next administration. It's standard espionage that's you know sort of acceptable um, uh, between intelligence agencies and countries around the world. But once we came out on June 14th and I wrote a blog detailing all the um, activities in our attribution case, the ne very next day something really uh, unusual happened, which was a blog post by um, a character um, or persona named Gusefortudaro came out on, on um, WordPress blog basically saying that uh, no, the Russians did not hack the DNC, it was just me, and I'm a Romanian hacker. Um, and then they started leaking the documents. And initially I thought, you know, we caught them, we were pretty confident in our attribution, um, that it was indeed the Russians, and they're just trying to discredit the case for, for the attribution. But then, um, you know, after that initial release, more releases came forward, and uh, it became very, very clear that it actually wasn't even about the attribution. It was about dumping this information in order to um, influence the process mm -hmm. and try to discredit the process. And that was um, something that we have not seen before in the course of U.S. election. And it seems timing-wise that this is planned. I, I've been 
in back and forth conversations about this, about whether this was a response to you coming out publicly to the DNC dropping this information. It seems like this was kind of queued up beforehand. Now, uh, it absolutely was. In fact, um, there's, there was another website um, that uh, subsequently has been linked to Gusperto.io, which is called dcleaks.com. Mm. And that website was actually set up all the way back in April of 2016, before we were even brought into the DNC, before anything came out publicly. And they actually started publishing some of the information in early June before our public announcement. So um, it's pretty clear to me that um, the leaks have started um, or the planning for the leaks have started um, as early as uh, in the springtime frame. Um, and that was always the objective. So I, I, I do think that we probably accelerated their timeline by coming out publicly, that they probably wanted to put out most of that information in September and October as they did with the Podesta leaks right. uh, for maximum effect. Uh, but because we had come out and made the case it was Russia, they had to respond to that very quickly and try to point the finger away from Russia. Let me tell you a little bit more about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, this is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized that the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. We've been experiencing this here at the Spy Museum. As we are developing our new museum slated to open next year, we are hiring new people to work on ex exhibit development, research, and more. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people. And we do attract the very best people, but the process seems never-ending and it can take a huge amount of time. Time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. It's the new year, which means a fresh start for your business. And a great year starts with making great hires. But posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter, you can jumpstart your hiring in 2017. Post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. And what's really great about this is if you heard one of these ads from a year ago, I only said post your job to 100-plus job sites. Now it's 200. You can see how quickly ZipRecruiter is growing. So find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com first. Let's talk about Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, which I... In my head, I keep conflating to Fozzie Bear, and that's not what we're looking at here. Um, these are the code names that your company gave these these right. these two, and and I thought the the idea of where the uh, the bear and panda there's Hurricane Panda was one of the Chinese things you did that, that you for each country gets a different animal. Animal, that's right. Uh, I came up with this sort of tongue in cheek um, code name system um, at, when we actually started the company because one of the things um, that I felt personally responsible for 
with some of the early work I did back at McAfee was creating kind of new code names for every single operation. And uh, I was one of the first people to start doing that and then everyone else picked it up and it became an unwieldy mess where everyone was naming things differently. No one could figure out how things were related. And we said, okay, we're gonna try to fix this up. We're gonna create a standardized naming scheme. We're gonna have a little fun with it too. Mm -hmm. So it's gonna be a zoo of animals and bears are, are, are Russia and pandas are China and uh, uh, kittens uh, are Iran, which is Persian cat. Right. Uh, the, the very fun one is uh, Kalima. And most of your listeners may not know what that animal is because it's actually a mythical animal. It's a mythical flying horse, which is the uh, symbol of North Korea. So uh, we have a lot of fun with that. And, and they sound nice and benign, you know, fancy bear. Could, but these you've now directly linked with pretty good confidence. And anyone, a lot of our listeners understand what that means in the intelligence world when you're talking about the levels of confidence to two Russian intelligence agencies, to the FSB, uh, which, again, most people understand is the most direct descendant of the KGB. Uh, it's not SVR, they're secondary tertiary when it comes to this. And then the GRU. What I thought was interesting was these two agencies weren't working together. No, that's right. So, so we have high level confidence that Fancy Bear, which uh, we believe is the primary actor behind the leaks, um, and was the actor that uh, intruded into the DNC in April, and then um, most of the information that's been put out, we believe, came out of Fancy Bear Intrusion, that they are GRU, um, Russian Military Intelligence Agency. The Cozy Bear actor um, actually intruded into the DNC way back in 2015. Uh, we actually believe that um, they primarily engage in traditional espionage, um, the types of other, that other intelligence agencies um, uh, are engaged in. Um, we don't quite know um, as well as we do with the Fancy Bear whether it's FSB or SVR. Uh, we think it probably could be either one. Mm -hmm. um, but with Fancy Bear, we're pretty certain that it's uh, GRU, and it's based on a variety of things, not just what we've seen from Fancy Bear, but other operations that, um, uh, not just what we've seen at DNC, but other things we've seen Fancy Bear hack. Uh, a lot of them have been military intelligence agencies, and just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we put out a report um, on um, an Android application that was used by Ukrainian forces out in the field in eastern Ukraine to help them guide their Soviet-era howitzer uh, batteries, artillery batteries, and the fancy bear actors have actually hacked that application in order to try to get um, general positioning location on um, uh, those military units and identify them. So that's something that's of traditional realm for Russian right. military, and particularly Russian military intelligence agency GRU. So the, the people looking for a reason to, to to doubt you may jump all over your statement that you're not sure if it's FSB or SVR. But can we say with relative certainty that we're sure it's Russian intelligence in some way or another? Yeah, we have high confidence okay. in that, right? Uh, you know, the last mile of attribution is always hard, mm -hmm. identifying the specific agency, the specific people. We've done this on a number of occasions, but um, that's what takes painstaking amount of work and, and tracking down the evidence, and not just the forensic evidence, but other sources you may have. Um, so sometimes you, you, you get lucky and you can identify it uh, very, very precisely, as we have done on a number of occasions. Others uh, times you're more confident that it's probably one of these two agencies, but you don't know exactly which one. Um, uh, but uh, when you look at Cozy Bear, they've engaged in a variety of operations over the last couple of years. They've hacked the White House, they've hacked the State Department, they've hacked the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In fact, the um, U.S. government has 
uh, come out and said that this was Russian intelligence agencies and our information is not just based on that but other things we have seen from those actors that gives us high level confidence as to Russian intelligence agencies um, but which one specifically um, that becomes much harder to ascertain. So you came out with this in June and there's a, I've read the blog post and, and that's when the attribution from CrowdStrike came out. Was it frustrating to wait for the government to give official confirmation? That just happened, right? I mean, that's we're, we're, we're recording this at the very beginning of 2017 but it, it took... It took months before the U.S. government came out. And even when they did, there was disagreement among different agencies. Was it- well, there was never disagreement on who was behind it. Right. Uh, there was disagreement um, about the purpose. Um, you know, some, some agencies were saying it was to influence the election in favor of one candidate. Um, others were saying that this was intended to discredit the entire process. I certainly believe that um, the latter is definitely true, that the process, they, they attempted to discredit the process, whether it was attempted to throw it one way or another, I, I, couldn't, um, I couldn't say. But the, um, um, it was very frustrating to wait. And um, I've gotten used to this, unfortunately, where it takes forever to the government. Um, not to ascertain the attribution. They knew as soon as we knew mm-hmm. who it was in, through their own independent analysis. Uh, in fact, before we were even brought in, it has now come out that the FBI had notified the DNC that um, um, they suspected they were hacked by the Russians. Right. So they knew this for a long, long time. Um, uh, but the issue always with the government is, well, how do we come out? Should we come out? Should we release this? And, and it, I, I think the government ties itself up in knots over this issue in my opinion, unnecessarily. We tend to treat cyber as very different from everything else, when in reality it's not. So I don't understand how we can come out literally the same day that Russia bombs a convoy in Syria and say with high degree of confidence that this is Russia and we have no issues saying, saying that, but oh my God, when it's a cyber intrusion, we're gonna tie ourselves up with knots, even though we have, have, have high level confidence. Right. And the first statement from the government came out on October 7th, and we now know, you know, for, for, for months, um, uh, because they, they weren't sure whether they were going to come out. You had all these conflicting statements from them of, well, we don't yet sh- we're not yet sure, we, we're still investigating, but yet we now know, as President Obama himself admitted, that he had confronted Putin on this in early September. You don't confront a foreign right. leader on something if you're not sure. Right. So clearly they knew with high degree of confidence if you're going to have the president do something like that. And um, still yet they, 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 they had not come out. And it was disappointing also to see that the, that initial statement came out on a Friday night. It was a written statement right before a major Cat 5 hurricane. So it was yeah. designed to be just dumped and right. move on, uh, hoping that no one would pay attention. And only now, um, in late December, did you have um, the U.S. government come out with additional information and, of course, the action um, that the president took to throw out 35 diplomats declare them persona non grata and uh, establish uh, additional sanctions against intelligence agencies in Russia. Let me ask you about the Homeland Security FBI report. It's been getting some criticism as being confusing or weak sauce, for lack of a better term, of not not coming out and giving all the important information and being somewhat equivocal and, and, and obviously, you know, not allaying people's concerns about... Uh, and even those that aren't already had their minds made up about whether or not there is strong confidence behind this. Is that frustrating also to see? I know Friday there's going to be more information, and then next week there's going to be more information about the piecemeal release of this and not just coming right out and saying it. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that, one, from the time perspective, this should have been done a long time ago. Now it looks very political. You know, Democrats lost the election, right. so they're trying to blame someone else for it. 
I think that's um, an argument that's been made, um, and unfortunately, because they delayed the action for so long, they have allowed that argument to be made um, and that criticism to be levied against them. Uh, but um, um, the uh, joint action release uh, from DHS and FBI um, was probably not um, the best report that the government has ever put together. Um, first of all, a lot of people misunderstood the purpose of that report. They thought it was going to be this uh, significant evidence dump of the hacks, and it really was about um, trying to get information to network defenders to just help them defend their networks. So it was mostly about a bunch of indicators that they threw together uh, from uh, suspected Russian activity. The problem is that most of those indicators were not vetted. There were a lot of legitimate sites in there. So there right. was you know, Yahoo IP address, uh, addresses in there, Microsoft IP addresses in there, and it led to tremendous amount of confusion and a lot of false positives. And the most famous example just happened last Friday when the Washington Post erroneously reported that a Burlington um, electric utility right. uh, was hacked by the Russians because they found match uh, on one of the IP addresses in the report. Well, it turns out the guy was literally just going to check his Yahoo Mail, and, and there was no uh, Russian intrusions there. So um, there, are, there are unfortunately a lot of issues with that report, uh, even from a network defense perspective. So we, we try to stay as apolitical as we possibly can. And, I, and, I, I'm, and so are we, by the way. Yeah, no, absolutely. is not political, and we work with both sides of the aisle, in fact. Uh, uh, we can't disclose most of our customers, but I can tell you that we have worked with both Democrats and Republicans in the course of this election. Saying that, a caveat for both of us, uh, it's hard. We're going to sound, I'm going to sound a little political here because uh, it's hard to take the president-elect's words and not get worried. Uh, it's clear there's a lack of understanding about what's moving forward when he talks about the cyber um, he is quote from last week was, I think that computers have complicated lives very greatly. The whole age of computer has made it where nobody knows exactly what's going on. And then this morning, actually, he tweeted out that why didn't the DNC have a better hacking defense? Um, the RNC did apparently. Is, is there, uh, is it worse, more frustrating? Is it maddening to see the response from the future Trump administration about uh, what is clear to the 17 agencies of the intelligence community, what is clear to CrowdStrike, and clear to just about everybody else that the Russians are behind this. Um, I, I, I feel as though I'm not being political in asking this question. Actually, I think that the politics are on the other side in this case, that I think it's, it's pretty straightforward, it's pretty clear who's doing it, and that it's only politics that are standing in the way of this being generally accepted across the board. Well, two, two thoughts on this. One, uh, I know that um, the intelligence agencies are going to brief Mr. Trump on this apparently for the first time. So um, I think that is an important step. Um, and uh, hopefully um, they'll share it with him, um, all the evidence that they have, which um, a lot of it is uh, very classified. And when you look at the government doing attribution, it's not just um, um, detailed forensics like um, what we've done at CrowdStrike, but they have access, obviously, to human sources, to signal intelligence. Um, sources where they may have intercepted phone conversations between people trying to plan this and so forth. So um, if they have that type of information, um, hopefully they will share it with the president-elect and have him make up the mind based on the evidence um, that he has seen. Um, but um, se second point is that I do think it's important for the government to come out and try to declassify as much of this evidence as possible. Um, I, I believe the case has been made pretty persuasively, but you know others may disagree with that. And um, I know the government has more on this, and they should try to make a, for for the case of history, uh, if nothing else, a comprehensive um, 
case for who hacked um, and uh, why did they do it. And uh, um, that's really important, um, not even just for the history, but we know we're going to confront the Russians on this again and again. In fact, Europe is now in the crosshairs because there are major elections coming up in uh, Germany and France and Netherlands this year that the Russians would certainly try to influence in a variety of ways, not just through cyber, but through their media manipulations mm -hmm. and propaganda campaigns in order to try to break up the European Union, try to sponsor nationalist and anti-EU parties there. Um, and um, um, it's important for the world to understand what they're dealing with and who they're dealing with uh, when we start to see new leaks coming right. out on German politicians and French politicians, as I expect would start to happen uh, as soon, perhaps, as uh, a few months from now. And, and what's extraordinary, there's an article today or yesterday um, about the weaponization of fake news, and not just to try to be an influence operation, but now being used as a vector for malware, a vector for spear phishing, where people are more likely to click on fake news and that is what's giving the the hackers the opportunity to get inside a computer. So it's not just it's not just about spreading rumors and lies, but it's not only it's spreading rumors and lies that bring in all these opportunities for doing real cyber damage. Well, that's right. The hackers have been engaged in leveraging traditional news for um, these types of lures for a long time. So anytime there would be a major event like an Olympics or a hurricane or anything of the sort uh, and major news stories, they'd be leveraging that to send out phishing emails and try to get people to click and often with a lot of success. So it's not surprising that they would now realize that, hey, people are interested in fake news as much right. as they're interested in real news. So why don't we start using that? Let me wrap this up by asking about a question that that's bothered me in the past. I've actually talked to uh, several people, uh, members of Congress, who know a little bit about this. And there's not, there's not many. Uh, I think there's only four members of Congress that have some kind of computer science backgrounds. Um, the laws for cyber defense, the the laws on the books in the United States, go back decades. At this point now, 1986. Yeah, so time. that's problematic. And what I see as equally problematic is. Uh, there, there aren't a whole lot of members of Congress that are that are our age, uh, and and I grew up in the age of computers. But even at some point, reading through your blog post, I, I had to kind of got a little bit lost in some of the more technical side of things. Do we the lack of understanding about this is uh, I, I see as a real problem, and, and I've equated this in the past. And this is where oh, this is going to be a very long question, but I'll, I'll get to the point. Um, after World War II, uh, no one really knew what to do with nuclear weapons. The, the generals, the people in charge, the members of Congress had all grown up during the time of engineering in the 19-teens and 1920s. So the people who were young, the people who had grown up with this new technology were the ones that were brought in that understood this. I, I see the same or similar problems today where I think the average age of a member of Congress is like 68. Uh, most of them didn't grow up in the time of cyber. You see, again, the president-elect talking about the cyber uh, and hacking defense. How do you update laws when the lawmakers don't quite understand it? And uh, how do you explain things like attribution, things like how you track this back, things like how to protect Americans and protect our infrastructure against outside hacking threats, whether it's state-sponsored or you know hacktivists or anybody else, uh, when there's no foundation of knowledge there? Well, I think your analogy is exactly right with the nuclear age. Um, the reality is that the policymakers that are putting together a nuclear policy today, um, despite the fact that we've been dealing with nuclear weapons for 70 years, 
I, I bet you most of them don't actually know how to build a nuclear weapon or how the yeah. nuclear uh, f fusion process works. Um, most of them are not physicists, and yet they understand the, the high-level concepts enough to um, create policy. And I think the onus is actually on the cybersecurity industry to simplify this. It doesn't have to be so technical for policymakers. Um, the reality is that when you look at what happened last year, it doesn't really matter what the details of the hacks are. What mattered is that the Russians uh, half hacked into these political organizations and individuals, and they weaponized that information in order to influence the election. Everyone can understand that, right. right, without understanding the details of how exactly the hack had occurred and all the indicators. And that's the type of um, um, information that we should be providing to policymakers and really um, making it much more comprehensible. I think the industry oftentimes, uh, by making this so technical and de deep diving um, so much into uh, the bits and bytes, uh, loses much of, of the public, not just the policymakers, but really the population that is not as technical um, and is not in the weeds on this stuff day in, day out. And we um, in the industry have the responsibility to make it simpler. We'd like to thank Blue Apron and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash spycast, and you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ziprecruiter.com slash first. Dole Dmitry Aperovich is the co-founder and CTO of CrowdStrike. Uh, their web, your website is, is fascinating and just kind of gives you, for those that don't know what the hell is going on, gives you a little bit of insight, especially your blog. Uh, the blog post from June is a must-read for anyone wanting to kind of see uh, how this played out. Uh, again, look, you may not understand all of it, but at the same time, it's something that gives you a good foundation for for seeing uh, how CrowdStrike came to the conclusion that the Russians were behind this. Um, so thank you for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate you t joining us on SpyCast. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, people can also follow me on Twitter at DLPervich. Um, and um, I'm always tweeting on these types of topics uh, for those who are interested. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.